Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. And the, the sermon title this morning is The Promise of Christmas. You know, um, we're in Ephesians and in the, the routine of things here right now. We're going through Ephesians. We finished chapter 1. We're going to pick up chapter 2. I was looking at the planning. I'm not going to be here next week. And then January we'll have a couple of vision sermons, uh, Sanctity of Life sermon, a race relations sermon. And so it's going to be January probably 30th or so before we're back in Ephesians. Continue to read Ephesians. Continue to study Ephesians. Continue to pray through Ephesians. You'll be more prepared for when we get back there, okay? But, uh, but we're going to kind of, we do have a little break here, a little separation. And I'm excited to preach the sermon today. Excited for a lot of reasons. Um, one, because Christmas in our culture has become, has returned to paganism. I really believe there was a time in, 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 uh, in the past when Christmas for this culture was a celebration of Christ. You know, I, I, the ladies were talking about this morning. We're not sure when Christ was born. Well, exactly. We're almost certain it wasn't in December. Uh, it probably was in the spring of the year. We're not certain uh, of a lot of things. We are certain that the date, December 25th, was chosen by Christians because pagans worshipped their gods in that time. They had a feast. And when people were saved, they moved out of those celebrations and, and created their own celebration. Okay? And that's not uncommon. I hear people question, should we celebrate Christmas or not? It's got pagan roots. Every holiday, even in the Old Testament, has copycats in the pagan world. The move of God has always been to reclaim what is His. And so I have no problem with celebrating Christmas. And celebrating on the day that the, the pagans celebrate their gods. I have no problem with that. You shouldn't either. We also shouldn't limit the celebration of Christmas to one day a year. We should be proclaiming Christ every day. But it is good and right to celebrate at some time in the year, I believe, and, and because, listen, it's easy. This week is an easy week to share the gospel. It is simple. You don't have to be very tactful. When you check out at the local store in the long lines, people will have on their mind Christmas. Begin a conversation. It will go to Christ if you let it. It will. People will listen. They'll ask questions. And so... I don't have a problem with celebrating Christmas. I hope you don't, okay? And if you do, we can talk about it. I know other Christians do have problems at times, but I'm more concerned with the fact that Christians are handing back over what was a Christian tradition back to the pagans. And we're doing it in all kinds of ways. Mainly by not making Christ the center of our celebration. Don't blame the world. It's us. We as a church have become, in America, consumed with consumerism. And uh, in no time of the year more than this time. When the lost people next to us spend less and focus less on gift giving than we do, we're preaching a consumerist gospel to them. And so we need to be careful in our celebration. And I would encourage you, every symbol you display 
that you think through how it is centered on Christ. Only display things that are centered on Christ. It makes people ask questions again. You invite your friend over to drink coffee and all the symbols in your home have to do with Christ and not the secular celebration. They begin to ask questions. So let's, let's be intentional and use this time strategically to share the gospel and to promote Christ and to exalt Him from the highest of heights. So I, I'm, I'm a big Christmas guy, okay? I love it. It's, 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 it's a great time of the year. And I want us to be intentional with it. And if you haven't been intentional this year so far, be intentional today forward. And next year, spend the whole year thinking about how can I be more intentional in December? From Thanksgiving to the end of the year to promote the gospel and exalt Christ. It's okay. Repent of the past and move forward. Don't wallow in self-pity about your failures. We all fail. Okay? So be encouraged. It doesn't have to be pagan is my point. It doesn't have to be secular. It doesn't have to be consumer driven. Families in our church over the past couple of years have begun to be servant minded even on Christmas morning. Some of you served at Salvation Army last year on Christmas morning. This preaches sacrifice and service on a very self-focused day. Some of you to this year are going to deliver meals on Christmas morning to widows and homebound in, in the Jacksonville area. This proclaims the Christ-centeredness of this day. It makes them think, wow, those people are leaving all the gadgets and toys and whatnot and going to serve. What's, what's up with that? So Christmas is a beautiful time and it's a good time to exalt Christ. We can have the heart, is what I'm saying. The same heart the expectant heart that the righteous, upright Jewish people had when Jesus was born. And the text we're talking about deals with righteous and upright Jews and how they received the Messiah, how they received Christ. And so that's where we want you to focus this morning. We read it. Amado read it. Did a wonderful job reading the text to us. And I'm going to I'm not going to it's not I'm not going to go line by line in here. OK, or we will be here all day. I'm going to pull out the meaning of the text and then distill it down. And hopefully you'll leave with an encouraged feeling and, and, a, and a, a scriptural ba- background and and framework to build your celebration. on. All right. So let me make some background, some, some kind of background introductory points from the text. And then I'll make one point, only one, but it'll take a while to get there. Luke begins telling the story of Christ like no one else. None of the other gospel writers follow his pattern. And that it is so unique. Just sometimes sit down, read the four gospels and look at how how unique they each are in their own way and in the way they tell the story. It, it, it magnifies and lay, adds layer upon layer of truth to us. It's a beautiful thing. Luke is not like Matthew, Mark, and John. He's more precise in details. He's more concerned with people and the Spirit. The Spirit, it's interesting, the Spirit is the main player in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts. Luke is a Spirit-focused person. He's communicating the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And he knows that, and he's trying to tell us that. So Luke begins his story with a focus on, in the first two chapters, get this, on the fading of the old covenant and the birth of the new covenant. 
He emphasizes how the old covenant is now fading. The shadows are fading away and the new covenant is rising to prominence. How does he do that? He does it in several ways, but one way I want to bring out to you this morning. I I find it very interesting. The characters in the first part of Luke, he emphasizes old people. Zechariah is old. Elizabeth is old. In our passage, Simeon is old. Anna is old. The righteous, pious Jewish people are all old. And they're all ready to die. And in the end of their life, having been pious, righteous, good Jews, they celebrate the coming of the new covenant. We see the transition happening through people. This isn't a coincidence. It is historical. It is true. And yet every part of God's revelation is controlled by His sovereign hand so that it paints for us a beautiful picture of what's happening. And He does this partly through the oldness of the old covenant. That it's fading and the new is rising. Okay? And so He does that in our text with Simeon. Simeon is, is not told to be old. It doesn't just come out and say, Simeon's an old man. He does, it do, he does that with Anna, but he does it more creatively with Simeon. Look what he says about Simeon in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it, hap- and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. This is a creative way of saying, because what comes next, Simeon is old. He doesn't come out. We don't know exact age. We don't need to. Why? Because when Simeon sees Christ and holds him and blesses him, what does he say? I can die now. I'm ready. I've seen what you promised. It gives the feeling... It gives the emotion of a life that is now complete. And so he's, he's emphasizing for us that Simeon is old. Anna is a lady 84 years old, having lived her whole life waiting on the Messiah. She is devout and she is righteous, like Simeon. How do we know she's devout and righteous? Because she's in the temple and she's fasting day and night for one thing, that she might see the redemption of Jerusalem. She's an old woman of the old covenant, which is fading away just like she's fading away and the new covenant is here. And she celebrates it at her death. So there's no rivalry between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not among God's people. Among God's people, it's not you either believe the Old Testament or you believe the New Testament. It's you believe the Word of God, Old and New Testaments. That word testament is the Latin word for covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. We celebrate both of them with the birth of Christ. Why? Because as we're going to see in a minute, He fulfills the old and He gives life to the new. It's a beautiful thing. That's just kind of a background. That's kind of a setting. That's the feeling, the mood of the day. The mood of the day is we have waited 400 years in silence. In ridicule, in mockery, in oppression. And we know the Messiah is coming. We believe God is true. That He is going to keep His word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promised one will come. So, 
That's the first background point. Second background point. Luke emphasizes for us the law of the Lord, the law of Moses. Look in verse 22. It says, according to the law of Moses, he came for pure. They came for purification. Okay, we're going to look at that in just a minute. And then 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, 24 in the law of the Lord, 27, according to the custom of the law. You see how he keeps repeating for us that they're keeping the law. Why would he care? About that detail, because Christ came not, as he said in Matthew 5, to overturn the law, but to fulfill the law. The only way he can be the righteous one of Israel is if he keeps the law. By the way, he kept the law better than Moses kept the law. Because Exodus tells us Moses did not circumcise his son on the day it was commanded, and God almost killed him for it. You think God disciplines you for sin? He was ready to even kill Moses because he not kept the law. Jesus kept the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day, just as it was said you should. And his family was a devout and righteous family. How do we know that? Because they're following the prescription of the law. Look there in the beginning. I told you I want to tell you a little about what's going on here. The purification rite had to take place about 40 days after birth. They brought the child, the firstborn son, to the temple to make an offering to redeem him from being the firstborn. He belonged to God. He was God's. And yet in Leviticus 12, 1 through 8, God provides for the couple who has a son, a firstborn son. If the son is the first to break the womb, the Bible says, then you shall offer. He is holy unto the Lord, but you shall offer a lamb for him. One lamb in exchange for your son. Or if you're poor, two turtle dove or pigeons. Whichever you can afford. And this will redeem him. And you can have him back. You don't have to leave him at the temple. God is merciful in that way, isn't he? And yet he's painting a picture. These people are righteous before God. Joseph and Mary. They are, they are keeping every precept of God's word the best they can. And they're doing it out of reverence to God. So, Leviticus 12, 1-8 is fulfilled here. Mary must be purified. She's had her child. She's had her issue of blood. And now, before she can be reunited with her husband, she must be purified. And her son must be redeemed. And Joseph must be purified. Because he obviously has defiled himself if he lives in a tent or in a home with a woman who's unclean. He's going to touch things that she touches. So he's going to be unclean. So before they can be right before God in worship, they have to come perform this duty, this responsibility, this joyful responsibility. And they're doing it because they're righteous and they're devout and they're keeping the law. The Lord Jesus kept the law from his birth without mistake or failure. That makes him the righteous sacrifice. Do you know that you have active, obedient righteousness because he did these things? You have a standing before God and you are robed in his righteousness because of texts like this. Because the law was kept. Because God's precepts were obeyed. If he had not obeyed them... One, He would not be God. Two, He would not be acceptable. And He would not be our righteousness. 
So we have this. Third background point. Luke points out the fact that Jesus was born to a poor family. How do I know? It doesn't say he's poor, but what does it say? Look at verse 23. They came to present him in verse 22. And as it is written in the law of the Lord, Leviticus 12, 1 through 8, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. But notice what he quotes. He doesn't quote about a lamb. He quotes about a pigeon and turtle dove. Why? Because Mary and Joseph could not afford to give a lamb as sacrifice to redeem the Lamb of God. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was born on the wrong side of the tracks. He was a poor man. Son. Get the get that. Put, hold on. Soak that into your mind. The Lamb of God who created the world. His family couldn't even give one little lamb for him. They had to give the second best sacrifice. It's the best they could do, but it was second best. God preferred the lamb, but he accepted. The two pigeons. Listen. Now now, now I'm going to be dangerous, okay? But I want to move over here real quick in this background and I want to put this in your life. And then I want to get back on track. Some of you, I don't mean to belittle this. This is a reality in our world. Some of you are on the wrong side of the tracks. Some of you, you, you're playing the part of not being poor, but you're poor. You don't have anything in regard to this world that's worth much. And right now you're thinking, why would this God care about me? And my answer to you is, his family only could give two birds. They couldn't even afford a lamb. My answer to you is, the Son of God was born poor at the most humble of places in the most humble of ways and so you're poor I'm telling you he doesn't despise your poorness because he himself was poor unlike so many other religions in the world where they only exalt the mighty God who sits enthroned above all things as a judge And as a ruler and as a dictator, we have a true God who, though he is high and mighty, belittled himself to the point of poorness. He didn't just set aside the riches of heaven and become rich on earth. That would have been a great departure from where he once was. He set aside the riches and the glory of the eternal dwelling with the Father and became poor. He wasn't even respected among his own people who were poor. So my point is, if what's holding you back is I'm not good enough for God, you're right. You're not, and you won't ever be. You don't have to be. He came to you as a poor man in a poor family. Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests. But Jesus has nowhere to lay his head. And he's truthfully saying... I'm a poor man. There's no other there's no other answer 
from anywhere else in the corners of the world where the leader of any huge movement is this simple and this poor. He died as poor as he was born. He loves you. He gave everything for you. So, we know he was born in a poor family. We know that the law of the Lord is being fulfilled. We know that the old covenant is fading and the new covenant is being instituted and born. Luke also points out that the Spirit is working at the coming of Christ. I see this here, but it's all, we don't have time, but Bruce has been teaching. I hope you came and you've been listening. Bruce this morning, I think, was talking about this fact of the Spirit. And so it's so neat to me that all the things here seem to sometimes just line up. When Bruce is preaching, uh, the birth of John the Baptist and the coming of John the Baptist, that's right, the first part of Luke, uh, the back back here, the children under four, are learning about Simeon and Anna today. That was not planned or announced, and I'm preaching on this. God, you know, He has a message. He wants it communicated. And so we see the Spirit is at work. He's at work when Jesus comes. Now, I know for some of you that is troubling because you're, you're wondering how can the Spirit be at work when Jesus says He has to go away before the Spirit comes. I'm not going to get into the depths of that, okay, this morning, but to suffice it to say here, this way. The Spirit of God has always worked among God's people. That is not the change that occurred at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He has always worked. He has always regenerated. If He didn't regenerate Old Testament saints, if He had not regenerated Simeon and Anna, they would not be looking for the Messiah. The remnant of Israel was regenerate. And that is a work of the Spirit in Old and New Covenant. Alright? He even is seen to possess people of the Old Covenant. But not in the same way he possesses the people of God today. Not identical. Similar, but not identical. And that's where I want to leave that. We'll pick that up at another sermon. But it's, it, it is really worth your study. But that's where I want to leave that. But the, word, the Spirit of God was working, is what I'm saying. How do we know that? Because look what it says in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's why he was waiting on the consolation of Israel, because the Holy Spirit was upon him. If the Holy Spirit had not been upon him, he'd been like the Pharisees, who did not have the Spirit of God. But he wasn't like the Pharisees. He had the Spirit of God on him. And then, look what it says further. And it had been revealed to him... The Spirit had illumined him to the fact that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. So the Spirit is on him and the Spirit is making his eyes to see the things of truth which God has laid out beforehand to happen. And he believes it by faith which the Spirit has gifted him with. So the Spirit is at work here. Five, finally, in this introductory observation stage. Luke tells us that those who were righteous and devout were the ones looking for the promise of God to be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. 
Righteous and devout Jews were not the leaders of the Jews who kept the law outwardly only. The righteous and devout ones were the ones looking for the coming of the Christ. That means so much to me. It's never been about who could keep the law the best. It's always been about looking for the only one who can keep the law. That's who it's always been about. That should thrill your soul. That should... Here in on December 19, 2010, you should feel the tug of the pull of the lines that connect us to the people of God stretching back to Adam. We're all connected through the covenant and promise of God. They were holy and righteous and devout because they were looking for Jesus. And you are holy, righteous and devout. Why? Because you are looking for Jesus. You're connected with them. Your ancestry spiritually goes all the way to Adam. That should make you celebrate at Christmas. Only God can do that. Only God can take Gentiles and connect them firmly to a foundation that is utterly Jewish. Only God can do that. These are the most hated rivals of all the world. Listen, he's going to quote a prophecy that is fulfilled through three waves of exiling people. Through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians. That's what he's quoting in Isaiah 40. He he, he paraphrases, he doesn't quote, he paraphrases a passage talking about the downfall of Israel and the rising through the Christ. By the Gentiles. God used the Gentiles to perform His work. And now He... Paraphrasing includes the Gentiles. He is the light to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. Only God can do that. Only God can take you and me, born in a Western civilization, in the, in the most non-Jewish culture in all the world, and say, you're connected and you're in the family of Abraham. Why? Because if God wills, He will rise up from the ground, stones, and make them children of Abraham. And He did it. We're the stones. Now you can celebrate Christmas. Because listen, as stones raised up as children of Abraham, our eyes are focused on His coming. He's coming. And the world may laugh and mock and scoff and talk about how, oh, God's waited all these years and He hadn't kept His Word yet. And you crazy Christians believe in this literal second coming. That's what Simeon faced all his life. They mocked and derided him. Can you imagine Anna walking to the temple in the morning as her Jewish brethren looked at her in despising hatred? You still serve this God who promised our forefathers so long ago that He would send a chosen one? He hasn't sent anyone. He hasn't even spoken to us in over 400 years. And Anna went in expectation that He would come. So when you go to the office tomorrow and they ridicule you for believing in a true and literal coming of Christ in the future, hold your chin up. Don't be prideful and taunt. Be humiliated and humble to be counted as a righteous one with the people of Israel. You should love your heritage and you should know your heritage and you should, you should revel in the glory of God in all of this. That's what Christmas is. That's the message. 
that God is sending to us. Okay, that's the background. I promise to get excited in a minute. What's the one point I want to make? I think the text makes. We, here it is. Nothing profound, really, but just summation-wise. We should be looking for the coming of Jesus because God will fulfill His promise because He has kept His promise. Listen, Christmas is the fact that God kept His promise to send a Messiah. And if He kept that promise, won't He keep the promise that He's coming again? And we have sure and ready proof that He will. And when someone says, how can you believe in a coming Messiah? Because He came the first time. God's keeping His Word is beyond question. So, how do we see that? How do we know we should be looking for the coming of the promised Messiah? Well, the joy of Simeon, because it should be the joy of our life. The joy of Simeon was the coming of Christ. That was his joy. Look look with me at verse 28. He took him in his arms and he blessed him. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word. For my eyes have even seen the salvation of Israel. That you have prepared in the presence of the Gentiles. He is a light to the Gentiles. And he is the glory of Israel. Now, why do I get emotional thinking about that? Listen, Simeon is an old man. I'm not very old. I will be, hopefully, Lord willing. Some of you are getting close to where Simeon might have been. And can you imagine that from your youth you have waited for him to come? Every day, in everything you did, it was all about his coming. It's in your mind, in the forefront, every event that takes place, Your heart skips a beat and you think it might be today. It could be today. That's Simeon's whole life. And he's in the temple doing what he does every day. And he turns in the Spirit, prompted by the Spirit, and sees a virgin young woman and her husband coming with a baby. And he says, I'm ready to die. I've seen the glory of God with my eyes. When He held that baby, I want you to think, can we even put ourselves where He was? Here is the one Abraham longed to see. And I'm holding Him in my hands. This is the one that David said he wanted to build a house for. And I got Him right here. I'm looking at him. You think granddads look at their children, grandchildren, with great love and adoration and praise, and they ooze blessing over them? Nothing like Simeon. This, this is better than a grandbaby. This is the promised one. And I've got him right here. Now, if you're old and you're dying, this is what I want you to know. You may die before 
You physically in this life see him, okay? In this life. But the moment you die, you will feel just like Simeon. Because when you die, your eyes will be opened to Christ. That's who you'll see. And just as Simeon held him, you will behold him and you will fall before him in worship. And better than that, you will then wait for the full consummation of the glory of God. And your body will be raised up to see him because all flesh will see his glory at one time. You're going to be part of that. So when you're gathered around your little evergreen tree on Christmas morning, you're singing some carols and you're reading a Christmas story. Don't ever forget that the righteous people of Israel had longed to hold what Simeon was holding. And they had never seen it in their lifetime. And yet God kept his word. And Simeon is proof of that. He kept his word. That passage he read in Isaiah 40. It it is, I told Aaron, I leaned over and told him when he finished that. I'm going to steal his tombstone. And he stole it from Isaiah. And Isaiah got it from God. So we got copyrights covered and plagiarism is not a problem. I think on my tombstone, I want written, facing the eastern sky, all flesh shall see him at one time. That's the promise of the hope of being there, planted like a seed, is we're going to see him. Listen, Simeon held him, and in that moment, he saw the fulfillment of what God had promised in Isaiah 40, and he looked forward to the ultimate fulfillment. He did both. He did both. Isaiah, when he penned those words, penned them for the people in his day, Simeon's day, and our day, all at one time. That is the beauty of this promise. It is for all peoples of all days. God has never changed what he would do. He's always been doing it. And that's the promise of Christmas. That's it. He's coming. He's coming. Not he came. He's coming. That's the promise. And so we see that. That here in 28, that he is Eyes saw the fulfilled promise of God. Simeon also foretold the suffering of Christ. So we know he didn't think it was all said and done now. Oh, well, the kingdom's here, and that means we're going to have a physical kingdom. No, Simeon didn't misunderstand, did he? Look what he says in verse 33. Joseph and Mary are marveling at what Simeon has just said. How can he say these things about our son? This is amazing. This is what the angel promised. This is beautiful. Look at 34. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Now, let me explain that to you quickly. What he's saying is, true Israel is the Israel, the remnant, which believes in the Christ. That's the rise and the fall are those who Though their physical Israel do not believe in the promise of God to send the Messiah, they don't receive Christ and they fall. And they, their fall is not just that they lose power in AD 70. Their fall is that at the judgment seat they will be made goats and not sheep. And they will suffer eternal hell. He's portraying Jesus as the only Savior. The only Savior for mankind. He is for the rise and the fall of many. 
in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. Interesting. His explanation is so interesting. Looking at Mary, he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul. In this word, he is forecasting, foretelling, forthtelling the crucifixion of Christ. Mary, this baby I hold and that you nurture and you feed from your own breast and you nurture and bring him up to manhood and he goes off and he is a great and revered teacher and then he is rejected. You will stand at the foot of his cross and you will watch him die and it will pierce to your soul, Mary. Don't believe that this is all fun and games, Mary. He has come to die. He has come to die. And that's further proof that Simeon understood that Jesus was the answer, and yet the consummation was coming in the end, and in the middle was the suffering. He knew it. He saw it because the Spirit gave it to him. And finally, sub-point, final. Simeon points out to us and to the original readers that Christ is for both Jews and Gentiles. Look at verse 32. He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and He is the glory of your people Israel. In verse 34, He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Okay? So that their thoughts might be revealed. Their thoughts concerning the promise of God might be revealed because of how they treat Jesus. The Pharisees didn't believe the promise of God. It was revealed because of Jesus. And they fell. And the rise was the people like Anna and Simeon who heard the word of God, believed the word of God, received the word of God in their own hands. They saw it as fulfilled. Now, about these Gentiles, let me just quickly give you this picture. In the Old Covenant, Simeon is an Old Covenant believer, okay? In the Old Covenant, the Gentile world is dark. It's dark. It had no real light of truth. For the majority... The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Canaanites, all those people you read about, the Philistines, they died and went to hell. The vast majority, save a few, they all died and went to hell. They lived in utter darkness. They had no hope in this world. And Simeon says, I'm holding the light for the Gentile people. Christ Opened the door when he tore the curtain. He opened the door of the Holy of Holies to the whole world through him. And so the Gentile world, which lived in thousands of years of darkness, when Christ died, resurrected and ascended and poured his spirit out on the church and the gospel goes forward to all the nations. Now, the Gentile world is in the light. They're no longer in darkness. Satan no longer holds sway over them. He is bound by the Spirit through the Gospel. And people are believing all over the world. Simeon saw it 2,000 years ago. He prophesied it would happen and it's happening today. The world is being consumed with Christianity. Every nation on the planet is being overtaken by Christianity. The harder the world fights against it, the more it is established that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are not losing. We are winning. Don't ever forget that. We are not losing. We are winning. And Simeon saw it. He knew it. He held it. And he said, he's going to open the light to the Gentiles. But 
He does not exclude Israel. Look what he says. For he is, a better interpretation and translation, for he is the glory of Israel. Because in the old covenant, the whole world had been dark and Israel had been light. But the Pharisees made a mistake. And a lot of Jews made the mistake of thinking the light was the law of Moses. That was not the light. Simeon was holding the one who made Israel a light. He is the light of the glory of Israel. The only glory the people of Israel have is the covenant promise of God which is fulfilled in Christ. If we we should never discount the Jewish nation or their people because it is through them and this light, Jesus, that we have salvation. And so we should always reverence them and love them and count them as brothers and pray for their salvation. Now, without offending, I want to say what really we see, and I brought it out and I want to end this way, was in the old covenant there was darkness for the Gentiles and the light of the glory of Christ shone in Israel. And as that covenant fades away and the new covenant rises, in God's sovereignty for his own purposes and for his own glory, the light is extinguished in Israel. For the most part. And it is shining brightly now in all the world. Most of the Israel from Christ forward is Christless. This may shock some of you. But there is coming a day. When for his own glory. He will turn the light back on in Israel. And thousands will be saved. I don't know if my eyes will see it. But I know it will happen. God for his own purpose has lit Israel and darkened the Gentiles. And now darkened Israel and lit the Gentiles. And in the end he will light Israel again. And in this way all Israel will be saved. Because Jews and Gentiles will be grafted in together to Christ. And a great engrafting of the original branches will be at the end of time. At what I would call the final fulfillment of the promise of Christmas. I would call it that. Listen, the greatest Christmas celebration we will ever have will be around the throne with our brothers from around the world. As we look at this one, a King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we hail him as the promise of God. That is Christmas to me. So my question, my one application question is, are you watching and waiting for the coming of Christ this Christmas? You need to answer that. Because if you are not watching and waiting for his coming, you really can't celebrate the fact that he came. And if you're not watching and waiting... There's no process. Simply repent of yourself and cling to Him. Now. Now. Don't delay. Because He may come before we celebrate another earthly Christmas. And then we will receive the promise. The ultimate fulfillment of the ultimate promise of the times. Our Savior.